0: Tuesday as we get uh, this August the 10th underway and uh, today on the show we're going to talk about a few things first we're going to talk about consumer credit which uh, just ratcheted up a big jump last month Uh, what does that mean also a little bit more about this infrastructure bill that uh, there's uh, two parts going on with that first of all you have the bipartisan infrastructure bill maybe even get a vote on that today of course uh, a lot less infrastructure a lot more pork um, in that particular bill and then, of course, right behind that now, we have the Democrats pushing a $3.5 trillion uh, infrastructure, human infrastructure bill. Now, a little bit deceiving there because they're saying, oh, it's just $3.5 trillion. Well, it depends on how you score it. If you score it without all the scoring gimmicks, it's $5.5 trillion, And that doesn't actually include all of the other spending that you've got to do to run the country. And importantly... It failed to raise the debt ceiling. So in the midst of all this, the Treasury Department is about to hit the amount of limit uh, debt limit that they can issue debt for, which is going to make it more problematic to fund all of this. So uh, we're going to get down this morning, also talk about the markets as well. But let's get into some stories this morning. Like I said, uh, yesterday we saw a couple of things, and uh, in, in, interestingly on the economic front, job openings continue to surge. There are now more job openings then there are actual people needing to work (laughs) according to uh numbers now look this surge in job openings this is this is very deceiving here in a lot of manners first of all we had record job openings from 2000 really 2014 all the way through 2018 19 before we had the crash in 20. Um, this surge in job openings is really just a function of, of anomalies that are occurring a within the data, but also to this is just a guess at how many job openings there really are. There's not really anybody going around counting how many job openings that all businesses have out there right um, but this is just kind of that and also to a lot of businesses always have jobs open there's always jobs open at restaurants as an example because they have high turnover if you have this many job openings and this also goes to the number of people quitting jobs at this point which is now at a record low Um, So people being laid off and terminated is now at a record low here. Now, this is interesting when you look at this this number because you have quit rates going up. So people are quitting jobs to get new jobs, right? Because you have record job openings. But here's the interesting part. You have this record low amount of terminations and layoffs. Now, why is that important? Well, you can't have a record number low of terminations and layoffs when you're still running 400,000 jobless claims a week. And we've been doing that ever since 2020 that's near recession levels in terms of terminations and layoffs, because you can't claim a jobless claim unless what? You've been terminated or laid off. So a lot of this data, you've really got to take it with a grain of salt. It really doesn't jive with what's happening in the real world in in a lot of cases. But hey, nonetheless, look, lots of job openings. The point about this is this is going to put the Federal Reserve in a bit of a box here coming up in Jackson Hole and in subsequent meetings as we go through the end of the year. There's already rising dissension between members of the Federal Reserve Voting Board, between those that want to start tapering QE and those that want to hold off here a bit, and those numbers of voices are rising, particularly as you start looking at things like record job openings and unemployment rates, which are getting stronger at this point. That's going to certainly put the Fed in the box as they start to meet their measures of substantial progress, which is going to lead them to start talking about taper. Of course, since that's what's been driving the markets, that's not an inconsequential decision for them to start talking about as it relates to the markets. Um, May lead to a bit of, of market turbulence going forward. Now, another thing that we talked about previously was is that watch what happens when all the stimulus checks run out. Well they're now running out. People are having to go back to work. Unemployment benefits are are going away and a near record surge in people going back to credit cards, right? Well, not surprising, right? How surprising is this over the last couple of months here? You've had a record surge in credit card usage. Why? Because people don't have the additional income coming in from the government, right? The STEMIs are going away. And here's the problem. Everybody says, well, everybody's going out and they're spending a bunch of money on their credit card. That's true. But are they buying more stuff? That answer is no. They're buying the same amount of stuff. They're just paying more for it because of what? Inflation. And this is where it really comes home to roost as we look at this. But, you know, one of the charts that you'll see a lot is that there was this massive deleveraging of the household credit. And everybody goes, look, you know, households are so much better off now because they got rid of a lot of their credit card debt. Not really. You went from about 1.1 trillion to about a trillion, so they they reduced their debt by about 100 billion dollars. We spent five trillion dollars sending a, <laughs> your money out into the economy; they spent 100 billion on that, paying off their credit cards. Not really a great amount of progress, and particularly when you put this to a longer term perspective, you can barely see the dip here um, in revolving credit debt, and more importantly, total debt, both revolving and non revolving. Now. At a record level look this is this is household debt this is what people have to pay for every month and yes interest rates are lower but the amount of debt that is burdening households is continuing to really crimp that ability to pay for things and make ends meet and here's the important structure of this is that what this chart shows you here's the amount of of debt in black and of course as we talk about one point you know 12 trillion dollars worth of debt in households the cost of living now requires about $16,000 a year in additional incomes just to make ends meet. So incomes, savings are all having a shortfall, and that means we're pushing almost $4,000 a year in additional credit card debt, not to buy more stuff, right, just to make ends meet because the cost of living continues to grow up as we have, and particularly in this case, as you have inflation, and that cost of living is going up, the ability to make those ends meet is not working, particularly when wages aren't keeping up with the rate of inflation. So this continues to really kind of burden society. And and now we saw from the stimulus, now now stimulus was making up about 42% of disposable incomes. That's dropped back here to 25% of disposable income. So again, a lot of that additional stimulus now out of the system, it's not coming into households like it was. And this is a real problem. So when we talk about Oh, households have deleveraged, really not so much. You know, when you start talking about things like, oh, consumers have so much in liquid assets relative to their disposable income, they have exceptionally low debt to income ratios now. Not really. It's all a function of the top 10% of the population that have all the assets and basically have very little debt. And so a lot, any, any number that is compared to disposable incomes or cash or anything else, household net worth or equities, we've talked about this on the show before, it all belongs to the top 10% of the population, everybody else in the economy not so much they're struggling to make ends meet and they have that shortfall they've got to meet every year and it has to only come from one place outside of savings which they have very little of incomes which aren't growing the rest of it has to come on debt and that's really the problem when you take a look at any any payment versus disposable incomes really not the case and for the bottom 80 percent their cost of living their cost of supporting that debt remains very elevated. That's going to really lead into weaker economic growth as we go forward over the course of the next couple of years. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. We're going to come back, pick up infrastructure, 200-day moving average on stocks. A whole lot more coming up on the show this morning. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. back to the show this morning so a couple of things to get into this morning this uh infrastructure bill and uh stock markets where are we now and what's gonna happen next so that's what we're gonna be covering here over the next couple of segments um but look just the point about all the economic data as as usually is the case is you have to really kind of look beyond headlines and it certainly sounds great right that you know people are deleveraging and you know there's Uh, a massive amount of liquidity sitting on sidelines, supposedly. And it's just, and and it's not really the case. It's a great headline story, but what you've got to determine is how is this going to affect economic growth in the economy? And if the economy was healthy and those metrics spread across the entire strata of the economy, then it would be a far different story. But when those those assets are all bottled up at the top ten percent, those those people are already spending at capacity. Look, if I've got a couple of million dollars in the bank, I'm not spending any more or less. I, I have I've bought all the houses I'm gonna buy. I'm going to, you know, have all the cars I'm gonna drive. I'm you know, spending whatever I'm gonna spend every month on Amazon. <laughs> so okay. You know, that doesn't change as if if and as I make more money, that money goes into savings or other investments or real estate or whatever it is gonna do, but it doesn't lead to stronger consumption. I'm already consuming at capacity. Everybody else, the bottom 80%, they're just struggling to get by. And so things like inflation et cetera, have very immediate impacts on their ability to make ends meet. And, and as you know, this is why it's not surprising to see consumer debt shooting up here because inflation is impacting their ability to pay for the cost of living. In other words, look, the way we measure a lot of things are in dollar volume. I'm, I bought $10 worth of stuff this month. Last month, I only bought $5 worth of stuff. The question is, is did I buy more stuff? Did it require more manufacturing to produce the stuff I bought? The answer is no, I'm not paying because I'm not paying more in dollars because I'm buying more volume of stuff, creating more economic growth, more services, those type of things. I'm paying for the same amount of services. I'm just paying more for them. And it's a very different story in terms of economic output. So, but this this also goes into a little bit about this infrastructure bill and the problems that we have coming down the pipeline that, again, this stuff sounds great on the surface. Let, let's do an infrastructure bill. We badly need it, right? There's, uh, there's very little argument that we need to rebuild roads and bridges and these type of things, but we pay a gas tax for that. So... Where's all the tax dollars going that we pay in gas taxes, which are supposed to be used to maintain our infrastructure? We pay a tremendous amount. If, you've, if you ever look at your electric bill, your cable bill, your cell phone bill, so forth and so on. Tax after tax after tax after tax that you pay. And those taxes are supposed to be used for what? Maintenance of the grid. But where do those dollars go? You see, this is the problem that we have in government is that we have this runaway unbridled spending and money gets diverted to all uses other than what they're meant to be used for. So we have this deteriorating internal infrastructure within the, the United States. And so, yeah, we need to we need to fix that. OK, great. So now we're going to pass this, you know, $1.2, 3, 4 5, 10 trillion dollar infrastructure package. Um, bipartisan mind you but as usual these bills are never the bills that you think it is this is not just a bill to rebuild you know roads and bridges and infrastructure it's jam-packed full of other what we call pork these dog ears that get stuffed into every bill okay you want me to vote for that bill you've got to also include my stuff so now this bill is 2,700 pages, very much uh, reminiscent of the 2,000-page Affordable Care Act bill that Nancy Pelosi famously said, "Oh, well you have to, you know, you have to pass it to find out what's in it." Well, we're going to find out what's in it if we pass this bill, and there's a lot of stuff in here that has absolutely nothing to do with infrastructure. Now, so the first thing is is that this is not what it appears at the surface. Um, is it going to get passed? Who knows? Probably. I think it's a bad idea to pass it because if I was a senator in Washington right now, I'd be going, hey, well, wait a second, we would pass this $1.2 trillion, and then you're about to shove another 3500000000000 trillion. I'm just going to skip this $1.2 trillion, not pass it, because we're going to have to deal with the $3.5 trillion that you've got coming down the pipeline. Add those together, it's over $5 trillion dollars. If you get rid of all the funky scoring gimmicks they use to try to score this thing to make it look better than it really is, we're starting to approach 7 to $8 trillion in total to fund the government and do all these new spending things that we want to do. And look, it's debt. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we've got to pay for the debt. And look, we've written article after article after article and showing the cause of debts and deficits on economic growth and and prosperity. The outcome is not good, and it's getting worse. If we paid as much attention to the amount of debt that we're spending versus as, as, as compared to the amount of attention that we're giving to climate change, we could solve some real problems. But we don't think about things in terms of that. We, you know, we're worried about the environment. Great. Good. Climate change. Awesome want to have a good environment, want to have a good economy. However, we have this unbridled spending, which is decimating the underlying economic growth rate of the economy and weighing on the economic prosperity of the masses. So instead of paying attention to that, where we could improve their well-being by reducing, taking action to reduce debt, improve economic outcomes, we could also be doing that in conjunction with climate change. But see, we don't work that way. It's all about spending. So, again, this is, you know, the problem. We have a lot of this. And, and you know, the single biggest offset being claimed in this, of course, is the repurposing unused COVID relief funds. Right? That's a giant scam. And, and they're saying that the the, the bill's authors of this uh, 1.2 trillion dollar plan are saying oh, it's only going to raise the uh, <laughs> it's only going to raise 210 billion in new debt, particularly considering that at least 160 billion have already been accounted for in the Congressional Budget Office baseline. Now. Only in the minds of Washington, you know, can you start to do things where you represent funds ready to be used when the national debt already stands at over $28 trillion. You know, it's, it's, it's like this, and, and there was a great quote in an article this morning. i was going to read it to you uh, directly. Imagine you take out a $20,000 loan to pay for your upcoming wedding. At the last moment, your spouse-to-be uh, backs out. You decide that you— uh, Just got a free $20,000 to go buy a new car with. Well, I mean, you already took out the $20,000 loan, right? So for the wedding, and now you just got a free $20,000 sitting around. No, it's still debt. You still got to pay it, right? You're going to repurpose it, sure, but you still got to pay back the $20,000 plus interest, you didn't give back the $20,000 and then say, okay, now I'm going to go buy a car and take out another $20,000 loan, right? You just, you just used it for a purpose it wasn't meant for. And this is how they're planning on doing this. You know, you know, $53 billion from states that elected to end the federal unemployment benefit insurance early. $263 billion, or nearly half of the alleged offsets, are coming from pretending that unspent funds that weren't paid for in the first place mind you, can now be used to pay for something else. How about just returning it back to the treasury and say, hey, we're going to pay off the debt with that. But this is this is only the beginning, right? Because now we're going to get into this $3.5 trillion boondoggle, which will be worse because it's not even being spent on assets that could be considered a productive asset. You know, if I repair roads and bridges and rebuild infrastructure and build out 5G, I can claim that can possibly be productive as it will help, you know, the transportations of goods and services across the country and, and more people have access to, you know, Internet capabilities, etc. cetera. You know, but uh, applying Internet to rural areas, sure, they need it. But you're not getting a great amount of economic benefit from the amount of money you're spending to provide 5G service and Internet capability to rural areas. So these things don't pay for themselves over time to begin with. But now we're going to do $3.5 trillion worth of spending on what's called human infrastructure, which has no payback, actually has a negative multiplier effect in the economy. But more importantly, it's only good for one year because once we increase welfare benefits to households, the economic input from that, yes, we're going to get an economic bump from giving people more money to spend this year. But next year, the economic growth rate goes to zero because it's the same amount of money from one year to the next. In other words, consumption doesn't grow from one year to the next. But the debt and the interest service does. Because we have to keep issuing more debt to pay for the interest that we're doing on the debt that we issued previously. This is the problem with socialism. It doesn't help the low to middle class. It's a wealth transfer process of the low to middle class to the wealthy that own the assets. Be right back after the break. We'll talk about the markets, the 200 day moving average. Been a long time since we visited one. What's the probability we might see one sooner than later? Or at least, as we say, by the last half of this year. Don't go away. Listening to the Real Investment Show. Carry on my wayward, son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. Welcome back to the show this morning. So a little bit about the markets this morning. Uh, You know, markets have been here flat for really just a couple of weeks now, not really kind of going much of anywhere after a brief rally off the 50-day moving average. um, A couple of weeks ago, markets have really just kind of been stalled here. We've made some fractional new highs. But uh, again, it's not been what, you know, a lot of analysts had expected because of the exceptional Earnings growth that you know we're currently seeing within the economy. Look, you know, it's true. If you take a look at earnings, the number of companies that are beating earnings um, are now more than we've seen at any other kind of really point in history, it's the highest level in history of the number of companies beating earnings. Now, it's it's fine, but these are comparisons or on a year-over-year basis from much lower levels first of all uh second all that we had record you know it's records now but it was records then too we had record earnings going into march of 2020 and estimates were that you know earnings were continued to grow they didn't they contracted and now we're back basically to where we were previously expecting this year to be in terms of earnings so you know we kind of round trip the earnings thing but yeah companies are beating estimates because estimates From Wall Street were always a little bit underpegged. And so not surprisingly to see companies beat them in record amounts, right? And this is the whole game on Wall Street anyway. And this is why companies have record stock buybacks right now to make sure they can beat those earnings estimates. They know what the estimates are, and there's a couple of ways to get there. I can either do it through sales growth, which isn't happening, or I can buy back shares and do a lot of accounting gimmicks, and I can create my earnings per share. And that's how we're getting there. But, yeah, companies are beating earnings. But here's one of the interesting issues that despite this, right, record earnings. If I've got record earnings, my outlook should be pretty fantastic for the rest of this year. All right. Optimism, not so much. Corporate optimism during this earnings season has actually been fairly sharply declined really, and it's the lowest level since the whole COVID you know, outbreak began. So, And no, it doesn't really have much to do with the Delta variant. It's just that simply looking forward is that that growth that you had in earnings, a lot of that came from stimulus and supports and other things. That's going away. So outlooks aren't nearly as optimistic because people aren't going to have that kind of money to spend. But nonetheless, despite this, Right. Despite the fact that we've got record earnings beat, markets really haven't gone much of anywhere. And this is not really surprising, given the fact they're already up 18 percent for the year. Right. So it's been a fairly strong year already. That's a 36 percent roughly, um, you know, at the six month mark, we were up about 16 percent. So you look at 15 percent. So you are looking at 30 percent annualized return at that point. That's a, that's a hugely strong year for the market. So, again, You know, if you're looking for an average rate of return of 6% annually, you've got three years worth of returns already in the books this year so far. So, but we all want more, right? We all want more. Um, You know, and this is one thing that we continue to really kind of talk about here is that the economy is going to slow down. And as the economy slows down, this is going to be more problematic, particularly in the value area of the markets. And again, you know, companies are not really trading on valuations now, but even companies that are normally considered to be value stocks, they're more tied to economic growth, which is going to get weaker as we go forward in the next year. So the value segment of the market is going to start to underperform, which means money is going to have to migrate more and more and more into the growth sectors of the markets in order to find companies that can create growth and earnings in a weaker economic environment. This is going to lead to other problems down the road when we begin to see more trouble as the market becomes even more narrow. And that's a problem we've already got right now. If you take a look at the breadth of the market, the number of stocks trading above their 50-day moving average, you know, the breadth of the market is not healthy. It's been a very narrow market, mostly kind of the large-cap, mega-cap names, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google. Those have really been what's driving the market. The rest of the market's really not performing all that well outside of that. So, you know, this is where we start to to talk about these facts that, look, we've had a very elevated elevated market here for a while. And, you know, if you take a look at the market, it's been kind of the stair-step process really ever since November of last year. The market rallies. And then it kind of just flirts around highs, and then it retests the 50-day moving average. It it rallies back up, sets a new high, then kind of just stabilizes there for a bit, declines, hits the 50-day moving average. And it's just repeated this process now about seven times since last November. And these revisits back to the 50-day moving average have been good buying opportunities, But every time we do that, the breadth keeps getting weaker and weaker and weaker. In other words, every time we come off that 50-day moving average, the number of stocks participating in that rally get weaker and get fewer and fewer. So breadth continues to weaken. And so the important thing about this is that it's been, you know, first of all, stocks are very deviated from their 200-day moving average. We haven't seen a test of the 200-day moving average in quite a long time. And normally, when you start getting these levels of deviation above the 200-day moving average, it tends to be points in time where markets begin to peak and struggle, which is a little bit of what you're seeing now. The other other event is when the 50-day moving average is deviated above the 200-day moving average. In other words, there's a big spread between those two, which we have currently as well. Now, normally, the issue with the 50-day moving average that you want to watch for is when the 50-day moving average crosses below the 200-day moving average, which means prices are declining. So right now, you've got a big deviation. And with regularity, the 50-day moving average does eventually revert back to the 200-day moving average. So much like prices themselves, all this cycles over time. And so you've got a fairly long stretch here in the markets where the 50-day moving average is deviated from the 200-day moving average. Prices are are well above a 200-day moving average, and these all act like gravity, right? All I'm saying is these are like gravity, and the longer that you stay deviated away from these, the greater that pull on prices are ultimately back towards that moving average, and that's why it's a moving average right it's 200 days of prices and so eventually in order for there to be a 200 day moving average at some level prices have to trade both above and below that average so the fact that we haven't had one a test of that 200 day moving average or more in a very long time is is a cause of concern because eventually it will happen and again if you take a look at just the periods of time so You know, if you go back and look over time and say, okay, how many days normally does the market stay above the 200-day moving average? Sure, there are periods in the markets where we've had unbridled periods of time where stocks have remained above the 200-day moving average. Very, very long periods, 500 days. You know, we're currently approaching 300 days. Now, it's not the longest Period, but it's one of the longer periods going back to 1960. Does it mean it has as so? Now, does this mean you need to sell everything, go into cash, and and just hide out somewhere for the time being? You can do that, and ultimately you'll be paid for it. But again, you don't know when. The problem, of course, also is getting caught up in the decline back to the 200-day moving average when it occurs. And that's just assuming it stops at the 200-day moving average. Reversions beyond the 200-day moving average happen all the time. So it's worth paying attention to the fact that there is risk. So you've got a a very long period of the markets where stock prices are above the 200-day moving average. You've got narrowing breadth the number of stocks trading above the 50-day moving average. You've got a big deviation from the 50-day moving average and the 200-day moving average. You've got a very kind of one-sided market where investors are chasing fewer and fewer stocks in order to just maintain exposure to markets because nobody wants to be out of the market. You know, fear of missing out, right? So you have this sense that I've got to be in the markets regardless, So when you start kind of adding all these things up, it doesn't mean, though, that the markets are going to crash tomorrow or next day or next week. And that's not what you should take from this. What you should take from this is that there's increased risk in markets of a correction. And look, a correction back to the 200-day moving average at this point is going to be 10 11%. It's not the end of the world. But it's going to feel terrible because you haven't had one. I mean, the last correction we had a couple of weeks ago was like two and a half percent. People were losing their mind over that. Jim Cramer was out. like, this correction is not going to be over until the speculators are wiped out. Well, it didn't happen. It was a two and a half percent correction. Then we went to new highs. And now Jim Cramer's like, oh, this market's never going to stop. So, again, just pay attention to the risk. Because when you do get that correction to the 200-day moving average, the media is going to be telling you the world is on fire. But this is just a normal process of markets. Markets don't go straight up. And you're going to get a correction. So it's worth managing the risk in your portfolio. This is why we were talking about last weekend's newsletter, which is on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com that, you know, we've been kind of reducing a little bit of equity risk, taking in some profits in areas, increasing our bond exposure somewhat to try to help hedge off that volatility risk if we do begin to get a a bigger corrective action at some point. And what will trigger it? Who knows? Most likely, it'll be conversations by the Fed on tapering their balance sheet. And that wraps up the show for the day. Thanks for joining us. And be sure to get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest article out this morning, Technically Speaking Tuesday, talking about, well, the deviation from the 200-day moving average and what will cause it to retouch that and what will that mean to markets. That's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Of course, while you're there, also send us your questions, comments, emails, whatever we can do to help you. More than happy to do it. realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow.